Welcome to Reconvene 2021, sponsored by Juniper Square, which provides a cloud-based investment management platform used by probably half the real estate private equity firms in attendance here at Reconvene. The conversation you're about to hear is between Mark Gilbert of Orchard Principles, a hyper-focused real estate private equity firm uh, doing deals in northern New Jersey, and uh, he is in conversation with Bill Brewster of the Business Brew podcast. So Mark's got a super interesting um, background. Do you want to start uh, when you went to Israel? I think is a pretty good, I guess, beginning. Uh, yeah. And then we can go from there. And if you end up crying, I've done a good job. There we go. So there's there's a little bit of a philosophy I gained from that. But after high school, I, I studied a year abroad in Israel. It was pretty popular in, in my high school. And I was on a student visa, long-term resident. I got a draft letter, which is basically continue lear learning in college, join the army, or leave the country. And I decided to join, um, and I did about a year and a half there, um, infantry, regular infantry. And, you know, basically what I, what I told Bill before is the perspective I got there is you have an end goal, you don't know how to get there, but you always know what the next step is. So, you know, I try to apply the same thing in real estate. You take one step at a time. You may not have the whole path forward charted out for you, but you do know what the next step is. So it's irrelevant what the rest of the path is. You take the next step, and eventually, one step at a time, you get there. So that's how I deal with a lot of the troubled assets. I don't know how I'm going to get to the end goal, but I know what the next step is. So step we'll, get, step we take. we'll get to the troubled asset thing uh, here shortly. But I just want to take a step back and say uh, it terrifies me to fight for my own country. So the idea of joining someone else's army is an interesting decision that I think says something about you. Uh, what about that proposal uh, was intriguing to you? And like, why say yes to fight in another country's army, I think is uh, the question. No, that's, that's, and it's a very good question. So the, the truth is, I have, a lot, I have a ton of allegiance to the United States, grew up here, spent 90% of my life here. I also have allegiance to Israel. It's a, it's a place of refuge for, you know, a, a lot of people. And it's kind of, it, you know, it, there's more obligation and duty that a lot of, a lot of Jewish people feel. Um, and to a certain degree, there was a moral element to it. Um, the Army there is, is a different commitment from the U.S. Army. Um, it's similar in a lot of respects, but there's a lot more homeliness to a certain degree. Um, there's a lot more, you know, homogeneity, if you will. Um, so it's, it's kind of an easier place to acclimate. In the American Army, as, as an Orthodox Jew, I'd be, I'd be the, really the odd man out. Um, there, I, I kind of fit in. Hmm. So, like, is there a part of you that felt, um, like, did that get you more connected to your Jewish heritage? Is that, was that, like, a driving part of that decision? I was connected to begin with, but it, it's just a continuation of that connection to, to, to a large extent. Cool. I grew up a Jew, a uh, step-Jew, but I enjoyed uh, much locks and uh, matzo ball soup. I read the children's Haggadah, but I never fought in the Israeli army, so... Um, I don't know. I commend you, man. That's that's amazing. And you said you saw combat, right? Yeah, not not a whole lot, and not Saving Private Ryan combat per se, but we, we saw our share of, of action on, on the Lebanese border, um, and it's less scary than in the movies I in real time. Don't think that's true, but uh, I, I will continue <laughs> to commend you. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so you come back to uh, New Jersey. And did you know that you were going to get into real estate? What happened? What did your What happened in your career to bring you to real estate? So I didn't. The original goal was um, I got back from the army. I was paid about two hundred fifty dollars a month. So I came back. 
um, you know, and it was time to start college. And I looked up the two highest paying careers were, uh, were basically investment banking and petroleum engineering. So I figured I got to do one of those two. I want to make some money. And I decided to, uh, to study physics because I figured you can get into either field, right? Um, at the end of the physics degree, um, the jobs in petroleum engineering were in North Dakota. The jobs in finance were in New York. I was in New York. So I, I worked actually, I moved on to, um, well, in college, um, I, I interned for, for an accounting firm. The partners of the accounting firm were doing real estate deals in Brooklyn. Um, I was, I was pretty, pretty in the weeds on their deals. I liked it. I co-invested on one of the deals, student loan money. Worked out okay. Um, it was a little bit gutsy, but it, it, it worked out. Biggest mistake was actually paying off that loan with the proceeds because I had 3% money for the rest of my life, which I paid off and you know still kicking myself for that and you know from there i went on to to ing bank um on the investment management side i covered reits and financial institutions so i was on the buy side there for for two years and i moved on to fitch ratings um to fix up the, the mortgage-backed security models they, hmm. they needed a quant and uh i worked a lot there so that that was my exposure to real estate before i jumped so then what made you jump so what made me jump that's that's there was no specific trigger per se um more the largest trigger was was basic autonomy it was i want to manage my own projects i want to work for myself um i could have done it in, in any number of industries but my exposure for for the past six years had been to real estate on both the equity side the buy side and, and on the lending side so while at fitch i developed a ton of lending relationships um, i understood the nuts and bolts of you know how banks are lending why they're lending to whom they're lending and what happens with those those loans throughout the you know, the entirety of the life of the loan, and more so into when you're on the bank side, you're concerned with defaults. And when you're on the equity, when you're on the equity side, nobody goes into a deal thinking, what happens when I default? When you're a bank, you go in thinking, what's, what's happening when the sky defaults? So, you know, the largest lesson I learned was how not to default on your loans. And hmm. um, it's something I take in every, every single time I buy a property. I always think, how am I not going to default on this loan? So I think uh, that's a good segue and reminds me of what we were just talking about uh, over here. Um, our previous speaker, Elliot, had mentioned that there's market return, right? And then there's the operator-specific return. Uh, so to the extent that people deliver alpha, I think this is one of those interesting conversations that's going to show how to. Um, so what, it, how, what kind of uh, real estate did you tell me that you like? Contaminated, right? I like stuff with, with problems. I, I like to come in and, and fix a, you know, an issue or if I'm lucky, many issues. Yeah. I like contaminated stocks. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Um, so let's talk about uh, how you, let's just talk about the gas station specifically, uh, if you don't mind, and sort of detail a little bit of that particular deal and why you were the market. So we'll look at one particular deal, but in general, looking at gas stations, um, there's, you know, there's a declining um, market for gas stations. So what happened was, is as in a lot of industries, a lot of big players, Costco and, and the 7-Elevens of the world have, have opened up these large, cheaper gas stations. And you have a bunch of these smaller gas stations inside communities which have gravitated over to public transportation. Maybe the vehicle owning population has, has, you know, has shrunk to some degree. Um, and you have a lot of these gas stations, and they're all generally 100 by 100 lots on corners on main thoroughfares. That's where they're situated, and that's what they are. Now, you also have a lot of legacy owners 
who are getting out of the business, there's not much to hand over. Their kids generally, the parents made money, the kids don't want to pump gas for a living or fix cars. So you have a ton of these assets actually going on the market now, and it's, it's been that way over the past decade, and it's you know to some degree trending upwards. And the, the issue is, if you're a gas station operator, you own your land, very difficult to sell. Almost every single one is contaminated to, to a certain extent with, uh, with benzene and petroleum and you know, other hydrocarbons. And nobody wants to buy them. Um, so that's, that's where I come in. I, I buy them. You know, there, there's a multitude of ways to buy them. But we'll look at the deal I did. It, it was a property that you know, was contaminated, no longer a gas station, now just a mechanic shop, right? Um, environmental liens, significant environmental liens on it. Right, so we bought it basically taking the property subject to the lien. So in this case, the property's worth 500,000, there's 400,000 liens, we paid about 100,000 for it. it. And you know, we paid 500, but we took subject to the lien. So cash, $100,000. So, so you, how do you even come across this idea? Are you driving down the street and you're like, that looks like a shitty property, I'd love that. So this particular deal came a little bit differently. Um, generally, they're listed with the worst brokers in the world, because no self-respecting broker wants to list a property that is almost impossible to sell. This one is a block away from a property I have. And the initial, the onset, the thought was, hey, I, can, I don't have parking for my tenants. I can rent this out as parking. Um, and it, it didn't work out that way in the end because we're getting a lot more from a, a single auto mechanic than, we, than we'd get in parking. But that was the initial thought. We reached out to the owner, actually the former owner's estate, and they said, yeah, no, we can't sell it. There's so many liens on this. Nobody's going to buy it. And I said, you just Hi, get excited inside. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, I love this shit, please. <laughs> All right. So you have your theoretical parking spot with a huge environmental overhang on it. That's awesome. Um, how do you work through what your environmental liability could be? So the same one step at a time, right? So, you know, you have a contaminated property. The first thing you do is test it. How contaminated, right? So you get your test back. You know how contaminated, where it's contaminated then you have a number of considerations when you want to go ahead and do something. So if you're renting it as a mechanic shop, right, which is what we're doing right now, that's fine. Nobody's getting hurt by the, by the benzene contamination. You have a ticking time clock from, from the state to start cleaning it up, which basically means do something every year just to show them you're taking some step forward. And you know, as long as you just keep making some small progress, minimal progress, they'll let you keep going. As long as you maintain compliance, keep testing, show that the contamination's not getting worse, right? And to a large degree, specifically in, in, in petroleum hydrocarbons, uh, they degrade, they're volatile organic compounds, they degrade relatively quickly on their own. Now, relatively quickly is, is measured in the span of roughly a decade, sometimes two decades. But as you just hold the asset, it's increasing in value as it cleans itself, basically, as the, as the hydrocarbons degrade. Um, and then on the second side, now let's say you want to develop it. Our, our end goal is these are all 100 by 100 lots. We can develop them all. The numbers work on all of them. Um, so it's a question of when are we going to develop it. So there are two ways to, to address contamination. And, and by the way, this applies to, to every problem that you have with property, regardless of what it is. There are multiple routes. And you can either clean it up or you can do some minor remediation and get a limited use, um, what, what they call a remedial, remedial action outcome, or an RAO in our field, which is we're gonna build apartments on it, but because there's vaporization from the petroleum, we're not gonna build any apartments on the ground floor. That's gonna be parking, we'll do podium construction with two stories above. So property's still contaminated, um, 
but you can but you get state authorization to go ahead and build on it and then you deal with the lenders and try to explain that to them do you have to disclose that to the renters like you, you don't have to um oh, good That's it, nice. because once again you, you'll you'll do because why would you fuck well it. The, there's vapor there's vapor <laughs> intrusion tests and and if you're reading anything in terms of numbers you're, you're doing something wrong okay uh i think it's interesting that um y- you know you talked about when you're in banking you're always thinking about what happens when somebody defaults uh, do you view a property like this? It's got liens on it. I would imagine the lien holders don't really want the headache, right? So the lien holders generally in environmental stuff and in a lot of the stuff we do is, is the state. And the state is uh. notoriously bad in terms of taking action on their liens. They generally won't ever foreclose. The liens, a lot of times, if I really wanted to wait it out, if the liens are from 2004 on this, um, and they're 30-year liens. I can wait till 2034. The liens are out of statute, and I, I can move on with my life, right? And and just literally wait out the state because they're not going to take action to foreclose. Uh, because at the end of the day, let's say they foreclose, what are they left with? A contaminated property. What do they ha- they then have to go clean it up themselves? Yeah. So you know, it doesn't get them anywhere, um, but it kind of ties up the seller and opens the door for me. Is that? Uh geography specific like you know how new jersey works with that or is that everybody yeah that's states in general they're not real estate operators they they're pretty pretty awful at it um another building we did which was built using a lot of government financing for affordability um the the operator defaulted on the affordability requirements um also 2005 2006 the state was well aware of it what Um, affordability requirements let's pretend i'm a five-year-old so okay affordability requirements so you want some government money to build your building so you agree to to rent your apartments only to certain people of certain income limitations and at certain prices respective to their individual incomes so you take some money to do that you go ahead and you decide not to do that. So now you're in default on this money. Normally, if you complied with everything after 30 years, those loans are forgiven. If you don't, then they become due and payable immediately, right? Um, the state's bad at checking whether or not people comply, especially on smaller projects. On larger projects, you know, there's enough noise if people aren't complying that people care. On the smaller projects, they kind of don't check. So you have these properties in default, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars of state loans. Now, People won't buy them because, once again, um, they're encumbered with millions of dollars of liens. How'd the um, state find out on this? Are you, like, calling the state and being like, this guy's fucking up? No. So so what happens is, is generally there's a bank with senior financing, and the okay. state is subordinated. So and then they catch it. what you're doing is you're buying the deed subject to all the liens. Mm-hmm. You're trying to buy the first position note and either foreclose on yourself or work something out with the state. So we have a direct line to the attorney general's office and... His guys know who we are. Who are you talking to at the bank? Just like a credit officer or whatever? So so the bank is, is generally a very straightforward conversation. It's, hey, this note's in default. It's been in default for 10 years. Um, for whatever reason, you're not foreclosing. You can't foreclose because the banks won't foreclose on affordable properties very quickly. It's it's problematic for them to operate it. So it's, uh-huh. hey, your $250,000 loan is now $1.2 million. How about I make you whole? I pay you the $250,000. But instead of, you know, instead of paying off the loan and giving me a discounted payoff, I want to buy the note. And then I want to foreclose on the property, and I want to wipe away the, the state as a secondary lien holder. So I, guess I know it's nuanced, but... <laughs> no, it's, I, I mean, that makes sense. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is how are you finding this stuff? Like, what does your sourcing look like so, on a day-to-day basis? So a lot of our sourcing on the dirty deals comes from attorneys who have clients who somehow ended up in this 
awfully mangled position or from brokers who see something, they say, I'm not going to take this to market, but I know one guy who might do it. Hmm. Or other operators who say, hey, I know this guy did this. You know, maybe he'll take this property. So you have, um, you've done a number of different kinds of projects, but they share a geography in common. Do you view yourself, I mean, I think you almost have to, uh, as a New Jersey specialist, and then that's why your referral network thinks of you in that geography? Yeah, and there are, there are a couple elements. It's not just the referrals. It's also the, the operations. So when we go in front of a zoning board, um, we, we have a team of professionals who shows up to the same zoning board representing us dozens of times. Um, a lot of times you can hire the guys who actually wrote the, the traffic laws for that municipality. Find who the consultant was. He's the guy who wrote the law. So when they say, hey, you're not in compliance, he goes back, I wrote the law. And, you know, this is the way it's meant to be interpreted. So, you know, people know you. When you go back time after time after time, people know who you are. They expect you. And they know exactly. It's, it becomes almost choreographed where you know what they're going to say. They know what you're going to say. You go through the dance, and, and you, you end up closing. Reputationally with brokers, if I went to Phoenix today and, and tried to buy you know, a similar deal to what I'm buying in New Jersey, I'm not going to see those deals first. I don't have the relationship that anybody feels the obligation to send it to me. Um, in New Jersey, there's a lot of stuff I get a first look at before it's brought to market. And you know, that's, that's really, really valuable. So I know that you said that you don't have a grand plan, but do you have uh, a playbook of you get a call on some property, um, like a checklist of, hey, what do I, what am I really looking for here to see what my risk is? I mean, you can't just sort of say, I'm, I'm going to buy an environmental li- liability and just see how it goes, right? Um, it seems to me a good way to sink yourself, yeah. uh, potentially. Well, I should say a good way for me to sink myself. You may be able to do it. So, so first of all, you send me a problem with, with a problem property. The first thing I do is I get excited. Um, so it, it can be anything. It could be a 25-year ground lease or a 100-year ground lease with 25 years remaining. Tough to finance, impossible to sell, you know, not fun. Or a retail center with, without ample parking, without sufficient parking, so it's half vacant. It, it could be something like that. So, or, or environmental or title issues. So first I get excited, and I'm like, great. Um, and then the, you know, from the diligence perspective is, is basically, I want to know before I close the deal, can I get out of this alive? Um, right. A lot of times parking's parking. You can't create more parking. It, it is what it is. Um, other times there's an adjacent lot. You can work out an agreement. So, you know, I, I try to have some pro form of how can I get out of this problem? But on the other side, I want to know if I don't get out of this problem, where do I end up? Um, right. So if, if you're buying retail without parking, um, and you're buying it at a six and a half cap, and your upside is all in creating more parking um, for the vacant spaces, that, that, that's great and wonderful. But at the end of the day, you've got a six and a half cap. If you don't do that, you, you, can, you can live and move on to the next deal with that, or a five and a half cap, whatever you're buying it at. So you want to have a prospective solution to the problem, but you want to also know exactly what your downside is. So contaminated a lot, what, what's, what's my end goal there? If, if I can't clean it up and develop, it becomes parking. And there's enough money in that to, to justify the prices here. That makes sense. Um, who's your capital base? So as I go further down the risk spectrum, it becomes more and more me. Um, from the lending perspective, 
Um, when I started off, I, I didn't start with these problems, with these problematic properties. It was two and three families moving up to 10 and 20 unit buildings. It was conventional multifamily. When in my market, as Elliot said, you can go out and buy a seven cap anywhere, any block you wanted, any building. It was all seven caps. So I didn't need to do this stuff. But we developed some relationships specifically with one lender who knows me. They, they know me and they'll lend on this stuff. It's obviously personal guarantee stuff. But they'll lend on this. As long as I come to them with a coherent plan, this is how I'm going to get out of the situation. They'll go out and lend to me um, as long as it's personally guaranteed and they know I have the liquidity. Sometimes they'll ask me to cross-collateralize with something else that's that's unlevered or lightly levered. But there are, for, for every property, there's a buyer. And for every property, there's a lender at some rate. Might be 18%, but there's a lender. It's Elliot. Um, he doesn't like doing it, but he'll do it. That's what the market gives him. I think at 18, he'd do it pretty happily, right? <laughs> I don't know. You guys should talk. Um, anyway, uh, so what was? So you said that you started out on the the more vanilla deals, yeah? Yeah. So did you have financial backers then? Like, what what what's your life look like? You're at a job, you don't like it, and you're like, screw it, I'm going into real estate. Are you the the main funds? So the first couple of deals, um, I, I was restricted out for, for conflicts of interest. I was at a rating agency. I wasn't invest, allowed to invest in anything public. So that kind of pushed me into private real estate investment. One of my first deals, my, my first deal to close, I guess, not the first under contract, was a refrigerated warehouse, um, triple net lease, straight up 12 cap, um, plain vanilla 12 cap, poorly marketed by a residential broker. You know, what can go wrong? And the answer there was, was basically nothing, Right. And that, that was basically a very simple deal. We closed it with, with a bridge loan. We did a cash out refi one year to the date later. And that became a lot, of, a lot of my capital base. We had a couple, quite a few of those one-off weird deals where for whatever reason, there was a lot of room in it. And that formed most of my capital base. I do have LPs on, on a lot of my, once again, plain vanilla 20, 30, 40 unit multifamily deals. Um, but on, on the smaller deals, I, I go at it solo. And how many people are on your team? So W-2 employees, five. It's myself, a secretary, and three property managers. Um, and in the field, because we have development, and, and one of the reasons why development feeds in a lot to, to the plain vanilla multifamily, you know, on any given day, it's between 100 and 150 workers. So th those are employees of, of my subs, which is great, because once again, I have my electrical problem at my regular 30-unit multifamily building. I pull a guy from another job site. He's working for me anyway that day. You know, I, I can send, I can redirect people. So having that flexibility, it's flexible, flexible capacity. These people aren't my W-2s. They're not my employees. They're there when I tell them to show up. They're not there when I don't need them. But having that flexibility to, to kind of, we self-manage without a huge overhead and a large staff. We, we've, we're very, very light on the, on the, uh, on the in-house labor um, by design. Um, but we, that's, that's kind of where the development feeds into to everything else we're doing from the management side. Does having outsourced labor restrict some of your ability to clean up uh, some of the properties? Or are there some, what are some costs to your model? So, I mean, obviously I'm paying a margin to the owner. It's, it's always cheaper to, to employ the people directly by far. Because once again, if I'm just paying people $250 a day, regular W-2s as framers, it's going to be cheaper than paying them plus the overhead of, of somebody else's business. The boss has got to make money. He's got to, uh, got to carry his own insurance, drive a car, whatever it is. And it's got to be worthwhile for him. But that said, 
Uh, I, I personally need the flexibility in terms of capacity. I don't have a need for, for 25 framers every day, but when I want to build out a building, so, so maybe I can carry four framers on a daily basis. But in order to do a development deal, I, you know, four framers are going to take forever to do a, do a nice size project. You want to have 25 or 40 or whatever number you want on that particular day. So it's, it's more expensive, no doubt about it. But it's also fewer headaches. I don't have to deal with personalities other than with the owners. And as you know, everybody's personality. Yeah. I was in flooring and I had subcontractors. I still had to deal with personalities, um, mostly people not showing up. Uh, the personalities I deal with are a little bit different. I gravitate towards people like myself. Okay. It's, you know, I want these apartments to be 600 square feet. And all of a sudden the guy takes half the hallway and says, they'd be much nicer for the 700. Look how beautiful it's framed out. And I have four foot hallways instead of six foot hallways. So I deal with, I deal with personalities too. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, what's your favorite deal that you've gotten involved in? My favorite deal, it changes day by day. Um, what is it today? T- right now, it's, it's a shopping center I did up in Montvale. Uh, Montvale's a high-income area in New Jersey. This was pitched. It was marketed by Marcus and Melchap at an 11.3 cap. So obviously, anybody who looks at that this is a year and a half ago, they say, well, obviously, there's some problem there, right? And the problem was ground lease 25 years remaining. So basically, you buy the building, you have 25 years to run it as best as you can, and then it goes back to the ground owner. So... You know, the, the other issue is a 25-year ground lease. Very few people want to refinance that, want to finance that in the first place because it's one loan. You know, it's 10 years into the loan. There's 15 years left on the ground lease. You're not really amortizing the entire loan. So, and there's a terminal value of, of zero. It's also hard for our operators to, to get the head around that I can't sell this and it's worth nothing at the end of the day. So that was that was a lot of the issue. Um, and nobody, nobody wanted to touch it. Um, and we, we ended up going to contract on the ground lease interest. Um, we were able to get financing. Um, I got a fully amortizing 25-year loan with rate resets every five years. So yes, the terminal, val- terminal value is zero, but I've completely amortized the loan over those 25 years. So coterminous loan and, uh, and lease. So it's a solution, it's a creative, creative solution to a, to a problem. Um, and the cash on cash with the financing, it was marketed at 11.3 cap because that was the broker's assumed desired cash on cash for anybody investing in the market. But once you leverage it up, it became 30%. So yeah, it's 30% with no terminal value. Oh, but still Hold my on. Heart. We get to the closing table. We get to the closing table and I'm closing the loan. Documents are signed. No money's transferred yet. We get served by the... Uh, well, served with notice by the, by the landowners who had signed estoppels, they'd signed everything, saying, oh, by the way, we're quadrupling the ground rent. The ground lease is 75 years old. They pointed to some clause in the ground lease, which lets them bring it up to fair market value. They gave me their interpretation. We're raising the ground rent from 70000 a year to 280000 a year. So I'm now at a 6% cash-on-cash deal, which is not that great. Um, we ended up going to court. We litigated. We went far down the road. It was... Uh, year and a half of litigation, and we got the judge to basically force them to sell the land to us. Um, so we ended up, look, we, we bought the land at a, at a 5.5 cap, which is much worse than the 11.3 we had on the rest of the deal. But that said, the blended cap rate was, was, was in, in the 9% range, and this is with, with 20% vacancy, which is now full. So Class A retail center, you know, cap on cost 13 14%, not bad. A lot of stress and litigation, though. This is not like some stressless deal that you just happened into here. Oh, I lost. I lost months of sleep, but 
Months. But I love this shit. I, I love it. It's 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 an addiction. I can uh, tell, man. You're uh, smiling, talking about it. It sounds like uh, hell to me. No, uh, I mean we're 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 always in court, and most you know we're litigating against. You the state say that like it's normal. Like I'm always in court. We're, so we're, tell me about that. What's we're, we're always in court. So you know what do I have going on right now? Actually, pretty much pretty much nothing. But whether it's foreclosure litigation on a defaulted note that we're buying, we we got one bankruptcy case going in. That, that, we're, that we're dealing with right now. That's the only thing we really have where we're buying property from a, from an individual who's bankrupt, right? So generally when that happens, those are good deals too. If you find somebody who owns a property, he's in bankruptcy, generally when they sell the property, they're not getting any of the proceeds. The creditors are getting the proceeds. So to a certain extent, they don't care what it's selling for. What's the difference? They don't get to keep that money. Generally, how are, why, why do they have an interest in selling? Generally, it's because they're getting a kickback from the broker. Because um, the broker's entitled statutorily to a commission, and generally I'll give it to a broker to sell it so I can, you know, get a few dollars on the table, right? But once again, they don't care about the price of the seller, and the creditors don't have that much of a say in the price. The courts have the say. And as we all know, the courts are, you know, divine experts in, in real estate valuations. So, hmm. you know, the courts have an interest of just getting the case closed, and the faster the assets are liquidated, the happier the judges are. So, you know, you can you can make a very compelling case. You know you can take the same property. Everybody knows that you can appraise it for a million dollars. You can get an appraiser to say it's worth two million dollars. You, you get them to say whatever you want. So you come in with your appraisal. You find the right appraiser who can justify it. He's got a license and he's willing to hang it on on three thousand five hundred dollar appraisal at you know half of what you think it's worth. You, you can buy those bankrupt properties. How'd you get? Uh, what was your legal argument to? Um persuade the judge to make them sell the land to you so it, it basically we, we got to the point we showed up in court the the general understanding i had eight counterparties because 75 year ground lease it was owned by one person they had a couple of kids who had a couple of kids there were eight counterparties um they couldn't make up their own mind as to what i should actually have been paying and the judge's interpretation of the lease was basically the way i and everybody else interpreted it which is basically um you know, that I was right. They, they couldn't increase it such a way. And they immediately gunned for a very small settlement. We'll increase the ground lease from, you know, 70000 to 80000 But once again, $10,000 a year on a, on a five cap is a significant chunk of change, right? Enough to, work, enough to, to, to go litigate against, right? Um, and basically the judge said, why don't you settle? Take the $10,000 a year. It doesn't hurt your numbers. Move on with life. I, we basically argued back to him, hey, we have to deal with these people for the next 25 years. So we're, we'll see you next year, right? <laughs> you know. So I, you know, I, I basically said, hey, it's one of the two. Either they buy me out or I buy them out. Um, and they toyed around with the idea of buying me out. There were eight of them. They couldn't get their act together. They, they spent a lot of money on litigation. I know what I spent. So they, they must have spent in, 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 the, in the low six figures on it. Um, but at a certain point, it, it became clear to me that they weren't going to buy me out. So it was, it was my turn to buy them. And then it just became a question of price. So what point did you settle? Like, how deep in litigation were you? What was that? I mean, well, you came to a resolution uh, where you purchased the land. How many months from the start of litigation to was, when you came to your... probably between a year and a half and two years. Yeah. Um, at a $15,000 run rate per month for my litigator. He did well on it. Yeah, well, he did well for you, I suppose. But once again, there's value to keeping your litigator busy. Um, you, you, want, you want everybody who's working with you to make good money, too. So, 
my litigator is my wife, so uh, my wife's I, also. An I try not to keep her busy. That my, gets me in trouble. I do use my wife as a litigator. Well, that's probably she, a good. She thing. litigates only against me. Yes. Uh, is she an attorney? She's an attorney. She's a there practicing you go. attorney, and she closes my my plain vanilla refinances. That's that's the extent of our our business transactions. Smart. Um, do you have another favorite deal? This is fun. Oh, uh, another favorite deal. Yeah. Uh, Basically, this is a cool deal. It's a tiny deal, but it's a cool deal. I, I bought a property, um, had a barber shop in it, barber defaulted on his rent, and basically said, hey, I have another barber who wants to take over. So we gave it to the other barber. It was pretty new. This is like my fourth deal. And the barber says, well, there's this other building next to where I came from that you should buy. And, you know, he's a barber. So, you know, of course, I took him at face value being new. I'm like, okay, I should buy it. I call the owner up. It's a, it's a five-unit building. And I leave a message. I didn't follow it that, that thoroughly, and I never got a call back. Um, about four months later, I get a call back. Yeah, I want to sell the building. It's a five-unit building, um, but I'm leaving to Phoenix tomorrow, so um, I'll see you in, in three weeks. I want $120,000 for the building. Now, it doesn't matter where in America you are. You can't buy a five-unit operational building for $120,000. Those generally don't exist. I said, well, if that's your price and that's your meeting, why don't we meet tonight before you leave to Phoenix? So I left New York City straight to the Polish Cultural Foundation in, uh, in Clark, New Jersey, with a pre-printed LOI, um, just a number figure blank, and we signed on the spot for an $100,000 cash deal on, on a five-unit building. And I basically, throughout the deal, and materialized. Why was he doing that? He inherited the building from his parents with his brother. His sister-in-law, you know, his brother died. His sister-in-law took over management of the property, didn't pay the taxes, didn't pay anything for, for years, didn't make any distributions. And basically, he ended up with a $30,000 tax lien. He paid it off personally. Um, he took over management. He was pretty wealthy in his own respect. He was a PhD at, at Dow Chemical for many years. And he said, this is what's between me and retirement. I honestly don't care what I get for this property. I just want to move on. I want to know you're going to close. So we signed, we closed the deal. I assumed we didn't do any due diligence. We did, we did nothing. It didn't make a difference what you threw at this. The numbers worked. Um, you know, basically, we closed in cash $100,000. Long story short, a year and a half later, the bank lent us at 60 LTV, 400000 on the property, and it was, it was nice cash out. So that's, that's a favorite deal. Yeah, that's awesome. That one's much better than being in litigation and, and I still, all that shit. To this day, the barbers never paid me on time, and I've never charged them a late fee. That's awesome. That's cool. That's a brokerage, cool. right? Yeah, you got a knack for finding uh, good off-market deals. Buffett would like you. Yeah, but a lot of the deals are smaller, but that, that's what I tell people. A smaller deal, um, I'd much rather do a smaller deal and make the same amount of money versus a larger deal. You know, So if you find the same $500,000 margin in, in a $100,000 deal versus a $2 million deal, you're, you're much easier doing the smaller deal. So yeah, it's, it's you know, the same amount of work. But you have a lot less capital at risk. So, why do you think you're one of the few people sniffing around these deals? That's that's a good question. So, there's there's this sweet spot for most of the people in this room. Um, Keith accepted. Where you know when you're when you're doing hundred million dollar deals, you're, you're you know I would be competing directly with the Kushner family. They're the sharks in New Jersey. A bunch of other families. If I'm doing $400,000 deals, I'm competing with moms and pops. So if you're somewhere in, in between that mark where you're sub-institutional, but you're above the mom and pops, there's a very limited spectrum of players in that field. Um, 
And but on the other hand, the capital is is flush in that area. You have you know Freddie Mac, SBL deals. You have Fannie Mae in that area. You you have a lot of lenders. You have a lot of local banks. Not so many operators. And generally, your seller is second or third generation ownership of the property, where they never grew to be the Kushners or they they never grew to be the big players. You know, and the kids are doctors and lawyers. A lot of these buildings. You know, doctors, lawyers, third-party managements, the rents are 30% below market in, in a dynamic market where the rents have been growing quickly, and they'll get rid of it. They, they couldn't sell it for the past seven or eight years because it was a bad market. Now they have a chance to sell. They'll sell it at the, at the stated cap rate and just 20 30% upside in the rents. So we can capture that. We can buy it with agency, which is a plain vanilla, easy closing deal. I, I consider it easy. And, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a good space to be in. And why? Because we all want to grow. I'd like to do $50 million deals. I don't see the numbers working yet. Keith will help me. Well, uh, you're making numbers work elsewhere, right? Um, how do you think about leverage and liquidity, like on your portfolio and then on a property-specific level? So I have a unique take on this. Um, if you look at the Great Recession, 92.6%, as when I was at Fitch, of 92.6% uh, of defaults were not... Were not uh, were not term defaults, they were balloon defaults, meaning the operator was able to pay the principal and interest payments throughout the term, but when the balloon came, the property went in down in value, they couldn't reappraise, it would have been in cash and refinance, and they ended up defaulting. So what we try to do, and you know, if I can avoid 92.6% of defaults, I'm happy. You know, if the, if the latent default rate's 1% and I'm avoiding 90% of that, I'm okay defaulting on, you know, five basis points of my deals, which is, which is effectively nothing. So we avoid, we avoid large balloons. And there are a number of ways to do that. One is by getting fully liquidating loans with a lot of rate resets. Banks will do that. It's not an advertised product. There's certain inherent risks that the bank's taking. They're taking basically spread risk because your loans reset on an index at a constant spread throughout the, uh, throughout the 15 years or 25 years or, or 30 years, whatever it is. Um, or at a minimum, I'll take loan, I'll take loans that, um, that float out to year 20. So once again, Freddie Mac SBL, the loan floats out to year 20. Um, so if you've paid off effectively 60% of your debt and you came in at LTV at you know 80 LTV with a little bit of inflation, by time you're at that 20-year mark, if you're anywhere over 20% LTV, you've done something really, really bad. Um, so you know it's almost it's almost impossible to 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 end up with a term default. Uh, uh, sorry, a balloon default. And the question is, are you going to term default? The answer is probably not. So the answer is, I, I avoid balloon maturities that are that are significant and drastic. Yeah, like um, something that appears to resonate from talking to you is uh, you're, you're very concerned about asset liability mismatches, uh, which I think is a good thing. Uh, in general, that blows people up. Yeah, no, nothing scares me more than bridge loans, and I take them, I utilize them. Um, they, they scare the hell out of me, and they scare the hell out of everybody. Yeah, I have nothing to add. Um, so what's next for you, man? So what's next? Now, now the, uh, due to a couple of flukes in the market, it's, it's a lot of multifamily development. Um, you know, once again, within my submarket. Oh, let's talk about that fluke that you benefited from. So yeah, this is this is a cute story. This, these are the gods of real estate, um, just shining some grace towards me. It's because you paid enough penance. In in January, yeah, <laughs> in January of this year, I was a little bit bored. Um, very little deal flow. I think most of us were pretty bored, right? And there's this three-family REO that I could have made a couple of dollars on and kept some some workers busy. And I owned on the block, so I'm like, oh, I, I should buy a three-family. 
Meanwhile, in the past year and a half, I've, I've sold all my two and three families. I've, you know, I have nothing less than 10 units, but I, for some reason at that point in time, I thought it was a good idea. It was an awful idea. The bank took, took, you know, five months to close. And by time I, I had closed on it, I didn't have the labor capacity to actually do the work. And it's like, yeah, now what? Right. So I listed it basically at a break even price. I'm like, I'll just get out of this. I, you know, I, I turned the gears for a while. I turned, you know, I treaded some water, but let's just move it on and, and, you know, write it off. Um, you know, we had a buyer at that price. They tried to retrade. I killed the deal. I didn't want to take a loss on it. And about a day after we killed the deal, they, they, there was a shotgun rezoning of that and a couple other blocks to where I could develop multifamily on it. So my first idea was, oh, great. You know, I'm saved. Next idea is, what else is for sale in, in this 20-block radius? Once again, very few people knew about this rezoning. It was We happened to be at the hearing just because we're active in the market, um, and we had other, other items on the agenda. There were about four people in the room that day, and the law wasn't promulgated until you know, three or four months later. So once again, there are four people who know about this rezoning. There's all this land that's available, which is now effectively legally rezoned, and we went out. We, we were able to get six other properties in, in that radius. So now the goal is, you know, we bought in cash. I stretched myself pretty pretty far personally. Um, but the, the goal is to go out and redevelop it. It's all as of right. The entitlements are, are relatively streamlined. So that was, you know, that's a benefit of being in a market. When you're at that zoning board meeting and there are literally four people in the room to hear it, um, and you have this asymmetrical informational advantage, you're basically insider trading in real estate, which is, I think it's legal, right? It is. It's beautiful. It's like so. how the game's supposed to be played. I commend you. Uh, I wish I could do it in stocks. I would, but I can't. So there you go. Um, well, that's. I mean, that's amazing, man. I, I think uh, it's fun to talk to to someone like you because what I hear from a lot of real estate people is, um, you know, it's not so much the geography that matters. It's the asset class. Like, if I can stay in my asset class, I stay in my lane. And what I think you're a pretty good example of is a geographical edge combined with uh, some sort of, I mean, I think it results in information asymmetry and a real willingness to work through problems. So I think uh, that's how alpha is created. Now everybody just has to go do the hard work and they can become you. I've pitched myself. I think it's your turn to pitch your podcast. What? Oh, it's my turn? To pitch your podcast. Ah, my shit's dope. Listen. Uh, I, I, for real, I'll tell you what, uh, listen to Moses's episode. It's one of my favorite. Um, he got to a place, uh, with me that I'm really thankful that he was willing to go, um, about his personal life. I lived a tragedy in my personal life, uh, fairly publicly last year. And I have tried to use some of uh, whatever platform I have to enable people to talk about the harder times in life and uh, get through uh, a message that sometimes I think podcasts, it's like everything I touch turns to gold and I, you know, it, flowers come out of my poop and all this stuff. And I, I like to talk about, um, you know, what really happens in life. Uh, so I appreciate that Moses was willing to do that. The other one that I'm going to pitch is uh, a man named Arnold Vandenberg came on my podcast. Um, he's an incredible individual, Holocaust survivor, separated from his family at three. Um, I think the Germans killed 31 of his family members, and he's gotten himself to the point where he's forgiven them. And 
Both of his parents survived Auschwitz. He's one of the most incredible people that I've ever been able to get to know. And uh, I'm just really fortunate that um, I've been able to get to know people like that through a podcast. So to the extent that I can share those conversations with people, that's my goal. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, thank you.